Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where you don't need a DeLorean to time travel. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you profitably scale from seven figures, which is really good, to eight and nine figures, which is amazingly great. We create premium valuation, profitable growth, and freedom so that you build a business that you're proud of and create a life of impact that you love. Why well, I'm back in the States after a few weeks of travel, great times, but there's just no place like home. Uh, people are incredibly friendly and gracious in Japan, and I think that's true of much of Asia. I spent a lot of time with exceptional business people, founders, entrepreneurs, and some of them pretty adventurous. Uh, one of the things that we did was ninja and samurai school. Yeah, you heard that right. I did samurai training myself on my very first day there. I had a little bit of free time, and why not, right? Learned to use a sword, cut cane poles. I mean, very, very cool. And on my last day, I went to ninja training and had four other founders with me this time. So this is definitely a shared experience and much more fun with people that I knew. And we were the only ones there. So we got to play not only with swords, but knives, daggers, blowguns. I mean, it was pretty epic. You know, it's the kind of thing that you probably couldn't do in the States for insurance reasons. So yeah, it's perfect to do somewhere else. But my big takeaway from both of those experiences is that I'm about as agile as a giraffe on ice skates. Of course, in my own mind, I'm 21 years old, cat-like reflexes, and totally acrobatic. But there seems to be a huge gap between my mind and reality. But I think that's probably kind of just part of the entrepreneurial mindset. We think that we're, you know, we can do anything. We can conquer any challenge. And uh, but as opposed to I did, I just looked really ridiculous doing it. But it was still a whole lot of fun. And had some similar experiences with karaoke, you know, way better in my mind, uh, but still a boatload of fun. And we made some incredible memories and, and just fantastic bonding experiences. And I think that, you know, life and experience with other people is is one of the greatest ways to, to live because you know, those memories, those experiences, they can never be taken away. And really build some great relationships there. Well, best of all, if that doesn't you know, sound fantastic enough. I got to time travel. No, seriously. I left Japan on a flight at 7 p.m. and then arrived home at 4 p.m. that same day, a full three hours before I left. I mean, how cool is that? So, you know, as someone who has seen and come back from the future, I have a, a little report for you. I can tell you that robots are real. They're helpful. They're useful. Um, they, there were some kind of ridiculous ones I saw, too. Uh, they make human workers more productive and safer, but they haven't replaced humans in the future. Uh, AI has not yet taken over the world, but does seem to be generating lots of spammy content for SEO and maybe a few school assignments. Uh, that seems to happen back here in the past also. And I didn't see any flying cars, so I was still looking for that, but haven't seen those yet. And since I was time traveling, I thought it was only fitting that I watched the fourth season of Manifest on the plane home. So uh, thankfully, the flight was pretty uneventful. Uh, you know, no, no major jumps there. We didn't lose uh, 
significant time or gain significant time, just you know, three hours. Not too bad, right? Well, so have you ever time traveled? Now, I've made the same trip a number of times, and I don't think I've ever arrived before I left before. Or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. I don't really know. But uh, is your pricing model stuck in the past or has it kept up? Well, today's guest will make sure that you don't get left behind, but that your pricing is future proof. This week's episode is sponsored by FounderPath. If you want to scale up, you need capital to do it. You could go raise big chunks of equity for a few bucks, or you could do what the smartest founders do, and that begins with FounderPath. Get non-dilutive capital in 24 hours with no personal guarantee, no crazy fees, and super generous payback times. Total game changer. Something I wish that I'd had in my first few startups. It's exactly what SaaS founders like you need today, and the process is super easy. So we've negotiated some special perks as a SaaS Fuel listener. Visit our site, sasfuel.com. There's a special link right there at the top of the page, or just jump up there to the main menu in the top under resources. There's a little tab there that says get SaaS funding. So get the funding that you need and keep your equity. Really important. Do that with FounderPath. Our expert guest last week, last Thursday, Mickey Kennedy, founder of e-releases. Mickey started e-releases to help businesses, authors, and startups increase their visibility and credibility through press release marketing. I love that word, press release marketing. Great conversation about how to use press releases well and uh, highlighted a number of dumb mistakes companies make. And I think I've made most of them. How about you? Well, if you didn't hear the episode, then you should go check it out and see. And our founder last week was Brett Barlow, CEO of Every, a fintech company that is completely disrupting the two-week pay cycle by making it easy to pay workers instantly. Man, it's such a great concept. He had fantastic insights into leading remote teams, financing, and growing intelligently. So if you missed either of those episodes, definitely go back and give them a listen. Well, my guest this week is the author of a brand new book called Software Profit Streams. You've probably heard me talk about it over the last few weeks. Luke Homan is founder and CEO of First Root. He is a serial entrepreneur, author of four other books, numerous articles, and an inventor who holds a dozen patents. Pretty smart dude. He's internationally recognized as an expert in agile software development and has done some really amazing things with Agile and Scrum. Uh, Luke's last company was an enterprise SaaS company called Continio that helped global companies manage investment portfolios using participatory budgeting. Another great concept. Well, Luke bootstrapped and sold Continio to scaled Agile, and you all know how much I love the creativity, scrappiness, and innovation of bootstrap companies. Well, Luke's latest book, Software Profit Streams releases today, and you've heard me talk about it the last few weeks. I think it is the best book on software pricing, on SaaS pricing that I have ever read. Way better than expected, more in-depth, clear visual, which I really appreciate, well-designed and well-thought-out. But, you know, you might as well hear it from the man himself. Welcome to the show, Luke Homan. Hey, Luke. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about your background in SaaS. I have been doing SaaS before we called it SaaS. Remember when we called them 
application service providers and managed. Yeah, that's when I started providers. too. ASPs. ASPs, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so I remember in my book Beyond Software Architecture, I had this diagram that talked about the distribution of responsibilities between, and we called it then on-premise versus an application service provider or a managed service provider. And then, of course, Salesforce really broke open the marketing and said yes. it's not software. Well, of course it is. It's just hosted. Right. Uh, and now we have software as a service. And we have, of course, other variations. We have platforms as a service. We have uh, discrete APIs. Uh, we have uh, complex uh, orchestrated services. We have lots of exciting things. So I've been doing some variation of SaaS since the, the, the dot-com days. And my experience isn't just as a consultant, which I do now, but I've built SaaS companies. I've been VP of engineering and product management. I've done on-prem. I've done hybrid. I've done collaborative systems. I've done solely cloud-based. Uh, I've built apps. Um, I've done international versions of the things where, you know, you have to localize into say the UN 20. Uh, so lots of SaaS experience. And it's a lot of fun because the infrastructure just keeps getting better. So our ambitions and our abilities uh, keep getting better. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I love Bootstrap Founders and you are definitely one of those and have had some great success. Tell me about that experience and what it was like growing a company and uh, you know what happened with that. Absolutely. The uh, company that we'll talk about is Contenio. And the root of that company was I wrote a book called Innovation Games creating breakthrough products through collaborative play. And the idea was that you could play games with customers. And these are a branch of games or a game theory called a serious game. So it's a game, but it has a serious outcome. And sometimes I, I liken it by an analogy to imagine you could play Scrabble, but at the end of the Scrabble game, you had a prioritized portfolio that all the players, all the business leaders bought into. And wow. Yeah, it's really cool. I built that for in-person collaborative work. What happened was SAP was one of my clients and they said, you've got to put this online for us. And I kind of got drug into building out the company uh, online. And I said, well, okay, but this is an in-person technique. And they said, and then I said, I don't know if I have the funding. And they said, well, we'll write you the check to get started. And that's when I was like, wow, when you've that's got fantastic. a problem, Right. Steve Blank talks about this in his book. Uh, he talks about like, you know, do you have a problem? Does the customer have a problem and are they looking for a solution and will they pay you even if they don't have a solution? I, I had that experience. I was like, this German company is writing a check to, and it wasn't like the German company. It was one visionary leader at the company, but sure. nonetheless, this visionary leader is writing me a check to build them a solution kind of on a flyer, right? Just because, and I was like, wait, this product-led, customer-led growth is pretty cool. So we built the first version. And, uh, of course, I tried to get VC funding because that's what you do in Silicon Valley. And <laughs> right. the, VCs, the VCs, you'll, I know you love this, but the VCs were like, we don't understand this, so we're not going to fund it. I'm like, no, this is going to be a big deal. And they're like, no, collaboration is WebEx. And I'm like, no, no, that's communication. <laughs> right. And we need communication, right? But collaboration is, is different. So we built this real-time interactive system. We broke ground. We were, we were really pushing the envelope. And then one kind of customer after another, we eventually got to the point where we didn't need the VC funding. 
And then I stopped asking for it. And, and I think there was a couple of real turning points in the company. So for other founders, I'll give them a couple of like moments for me that were seminal. One of them was realizing that I didn't have to be judged by other people's growth metrics to build a great company. And I know you talk about that. I know you talk about yes. in your pocket. You've talked about how if, if you take the money, then you have a different company. And I'm not saying it's wrong, of course. I don't, and you don't either, right? Sure. You're, you're like, look, if you want to take VC money, take VC money, but but it comes with strings, right? Those who marry it for does. money earn it. <laughs> Those who marry for money earn it. <laughs> I marry for love. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really seminal moment was making that choice consciously. I don't think I made that choice consciously when I started. I was following the herd mentality. Oh, you start a company, you go get funding, you grow, you you do this. And then I realized, no, I can follow a different path. I think the second thing is there comes a point in that customer journey where you really have to sit down and own one of three meta segments. And I talk about this in our new book, Profit Streams, and I know we'll get to that later, but you can either be a B2C company a B2P company where you're selling to professionals or a B2B company where you're selling a solution to a business. And the way I describe the differences is because we, we often talk about B2B software, but no one ever really defines what that is. Right. So here's my definition and I'll offer it. I, I'm not offering it as perfect, but it's something that I found very useful. B2B software has four characteristics that are distinguishing it from other kinds of software. First, it's built for the business and it's considered mission critical to the business, right? I have to have a finance system. I don't have to have a marketing email system, but I have to have something that's running my numbers, meaning it could be QuickBooks to Oracle on-prem to Workday in the cloud, depending on the size of my company, but I have to have a financial management system. I cannot run right. a business without it, right? The second is it's expensive. It's something that typically considered so expensive that the business is going to buy it. it. It's not an individual purchase. It's not like a game or it's not even a professional purpose, like a hobbyist who spends money on something. This is expensive. The third is it manages and interacts with other systems. So, so it manages data that's important and therefore it's interacting with other systems and because of the first three characteristics, it's mission critical, it's expensive, and it manages data and interacts with other systems, it's operated outside of any individual's control. So if you want to upgrade hmm. your operating system on your laptop, you just go do it. If you want to upgrade... Right, just click a button. Yeah, you hit the button. Or if you wanted to update a software that's running on your laptop, because of course we have software, quote unquote, on-prem on our laptops, right? 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 You'll just go update it. Well, you don't go, sure. you as a, you as the finance person, don't, don't just go update Oracle or update, <laughs> right? You're working with a set of, uh, an or, a set of people, the organization often called information technology or sometimes business technology. But the point is that business software, B2B software has a, these characteristics. And then there's other characteristics, but those four are really critical. It's, it's mission critical, it's expensive, it manages data and interacts with other systems, 
Therefore, it's managed. And one of the things I see bootstrap founders struggle with is they think, and we all do, right? We think, oh, I want the biggest possible company and I want to serve as many customers as I can. So I'm going to serve all those segments. And the answer is no, 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 no. The characteristics of consumer software, professional software, and business software are really so different that you got to kind of pick one. And so what do you see the differences being between true B2B and like business to professional? What would that uh, professional. be? So the professionals will tell you that they have all of those qualities, except it's not mission critical. So professionals will tell you, uh, I have software that's expensive, like Adobe. My favorite example is uh, Adobe Creative Cloud, which are used by design professionals everywhere. True. But that's it's expensive. Not, it's expensive, right? <laughs> Yeah, for individuals, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's expensive. It manages unique data. And they will claim it's mission critical, but it's not mission critical to the business. Right. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't quite, it meets the definition of B2P, which is not denigrating Adobe Creative Cloud. It's a great, sure. it's a great solution, but it's not meeting the definition. And, and the reason I, I've had friends of mine say, no, B2P is the same as B2B. And I'm like, no, it's really not. Usually you'll see tribes of people, associations associated with B2P software. You'll see the marketing tribe. You'll see the engineering tribe. You'll see, and, and then those tribes fractal. You'll see within marketing, the marketing automation subtribe, or within engineering, you'll see the database management and design. And then there's specific tools for database design that they use for diagramming, generating the database structures, or performance testing or load testing. When you see professional software, you'll often see these kind of tribes associated with the software that are, in a sense, idiosyncratic and and it's very narrow and it's very deep. It's a narrow, deep solution. And that makes a lot of sense. It may not be mission critical for the business, but it may be mission critical for the role or that, that specific function. That's right. And when a bootstrap founder is building that out, that's something that that they should really pay attention to. Like, where do I, what lane do I want to swim in? And because the economics are extremely different. I am uh, more experienced and, and a little bit more comfortable in B2B. And so I'm very comfortable with selling, uh, you know, negotiating and selling um, six, seven, eight figure deals. And people are like, wow, that license you closed with BMW, it took 18 months. And I'm like, yeah. And it's also a seven plus figure deal. And how many 499 apps do you have to sell? And did you run the economics to get to the same number I got in one deal? So I sometimes like in that, I have a lot of analogies that I've used to help me frame my business, even in new employees. Are you catching mosquitoes in a net or are you hunting elephants? And I'm usually hunting elephants for myself. And those are two very different things for sales, for marketing, the, the model is different. So I think having the, the understanding of, of what is it you're doing, who are you selling to, super important and not trying to go after the whole world. I, I want to have a really big TAM. That's great right. for investors. But when it comes to marketing and really selling in the real world, you have to go smaller. Right. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons VCs, or investors um, are fashion driven, right? They go with fashion. And when I started Contenio, the fashion of the day was not enterprise software. It was about 2010. And so uh, when, when VCs are going through their, their fashion gyrations, that was when 
you know, enterprise software not cool. We want to invest in consumer and iPhones and consumer tech and, you know, the Airbnbs and the lifts sure. and the things like that. And, and I remember one time I, when I was still pitching VCs, I, they said, what's your TAM? And I said, my TAM is basically 10,000 fortune. You know, my, my, my TAM is the fortune 10,000. So I have 10,000 companies. I'm like, oh, that's not big enough. I'm like, and I was like, y'all know how much they spend on software. Like, it's only trillions in revenue. What what do we know, right? Not yeah, big enough. Like, like, I think it's pretty big enough. And I was able to, to show them from my actual sales data. I said, look, the smallest deal I sell is 100K. The biggest deals I sell are a million plus. So the math is actually pretty good to have 10,000 100K deal minimum to 10,000 1 million plus deals. That's that's plenty big, <laughs> but they were and like, that's no. a number that's manageable too. I mean, 10,000, you can do account-based marketing. There's so many things that you can do and that pricing dictates what your, your cost of client acquisition is. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I'm uh, I have a task on my uh, backlog to create a version of our spreadsheet for B2B founders, because there's some really great spreadsheets out there for, um, MRR founders, uh, you can see the, the churn and the, the MRR, like there's a couple of really good sp spreadsheets out there, but uh, my spreadsheet literally had a line item for each of my customers. And I had in my spreadsheet money managing my business. I had for every license I sold the term start, the term end, the upfront cash, any kickers, any accelerators. I had, uh, two versions of that data. So I had one sheet that had that data. And then I had one sheet that looked at the data from a gap perspective. And then I had another sheet that looked at it as a cash flow perspective. Because you know the virtue of enterprise SaaS is that you close the deal, they're going to write a, a $500,000 check. And of course, sure. that's a liability in generally accepted accounting principles. You're going to take that cash in, but you're going to rateably recognize it over the term of the contract. Right. So let's say it's a and I'll use round numbers because it's easy. Let's say it's a $480,000 contract over 24 months. Well, you're going to recognize that rateably, 20K over a month, right. but you get that cash up front. So startups have to manage their cash. We all know that. Not everyone does that. But I would actually keep the, the raw data in one sheet, and then I would look at my gap versus my cash. So that would help me know when I could make investments in the platform, if I had a significant change I wanted to make, or if I wanted to hire developers, or uh, sometimes I had a couple of, I would want to have flex staffing. So another lesson for founders is you want to have a mix. In my, in my experience, you want to have a mix of your core employees who you have kind of a social commitment to, to, to give them jobs and give them benefits and have a good job uh, have a good company. And then you want to have a relationship with one really good outsource provider that you can trust. And that relationship is you, you, you structure it so that you say, look, I have a long-term commitment to our relationship, but you're the team I flex. So if I've got more money, I'm going to hire you for doing non-critical path work that is important work. But if I lose a little money or if I lose a contract or if it doesn't renew, I'm not going to 
have as much work with you. And if you can bring yourself to have that depth of clarity and, and honesty in your relationship with your contract, I have one firm I've worked with, uh, uh, Madeira, Mexico for a long time. Uh, we've become friends, but I've been able to flex with them for a long time. And, and they, they understand and they appreciate the, the position I'm in. It's not, you know, again, if you're bootstrapped, you don't have like a pile of VC cash. Right, right. So you have to manage those relationships differently. And then for founders who I know, I know you all think that you're going to go IPO and I know you all think you're going to make everyone rich, but please treat your employees fairly. I typically would do uh, glass door surveys and other things. And I would try to pay about 60% to 70% of average salary. I couldn't compete. I live in Silicon Valley. I can't compete with a Google or a Facebook or sure. an Apple in terms of salary. Who can? But I'm also, right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm also not trying to walk up to people and say, take dirt pay and your equity will make you rich. Because I think that that's, but that's not something I feel comfortable saying. <laughs> I know other founders say it all the time, but sure. But they don't have maybe as much experience in life. <laughs> so how did that work you know, as you approached the exit and went through that? Um, what were the advantages to being bootstrapped versus VC? I know you've, you've had other people that you've known that have gone through that and, and you know their experience may have been a little bit different. Yeah, I. what happened was, and, and I didn't tell you this in our, so for all the listeners, uh, this is this is a, a standard process in the sense that we do like a pre-show thing about what we're going to talk about, and then we talk about them. So I'm I'm going to get to that, but I forgot to tell you that I I made a couple of mistakes in the acquisition process. Okay. The first was one of my strategic customers came up to me and said, "Hey, we want to acquire you," and I said, "Oh, that's great." And but in the process of that discussion, I learned it was really going to be an aqua hire because they loved our development staff. So I went to the employees and I said, Hey, this company wants to acquire us. And everyone's like, no, we want to build what we're building. We don't want to see it shut down. So that was not a mistake. That was, that was the right thing to do. But then uh, about a year later, another company of our, a client of ours said, Hey, we want to acquire you. And I said, great. So I went and hired an investment banker and that deal fell through, but the investment banker convinced me that they could sell my company. And I pissed away about a hundred thousand, about one hundred twenty thousand dollars, because the investment banker had me convinced that their special skills as salespeople right. would result. And here's the bottom line: a company is a product, just like anything else. If it, sure the product is. itself isn't ready to be bought, the sales team and the marketing team can't sell it. And it doesn't matter if it's a company or a cup or a car, it's still a thing that is sold. And I think that that's something that really, that was one of those turning points for me personally, like realizing my company is the product. And so I fired the investment banker and I, I went back to the drawing board and I'm like, okay, what makes us sellable? Which I never really embraced. And I realized the reason no one wanted to buy us is because we just weren't sellable. We didn't have the right processes. We didn't have the right uh, infrastructure. We just weren't quite acquirable. So then we worked on being acquirable. And then out of the blue, I was working with another strategic partner. And this gentleman is older and very experienced. He's, he owns an island in Hawaii. I mean, he's five-time founder and seller of companies and all that kind of stuff. Nice. 
And so we go out to dinner. He's like, hey, what are you going to do with your company? I'm like, oh, I want to sell it. And I just thought we were getting advice from the experienced guy. And he's like, oh, what do you want to sell it for? And I'm like, X. And he says to me, oh, that's really fair. And I'm like, yeah, you work with me. I'm fair. He's like, no, people get valuations wrong all the time. He said, that valuation. And he said, how did you derive it? I said, well, we have a little bit of service revenue and we have our license revenue. So I'm valuing my company at 1.2 times service revenue because we have a valuable service and eight times our gross revenue for um, our software. Because, I mean, you can value on whatever. You can value on EBITDA. But but the challenge with EBITDA is it's manipulable because if you're a growing company, your EBITDA is going to be low because you're investing in the business. Correct. You can't manipulate top-line revenue. So I tend to prefer um, two things when I'm looking at company valuations. And and I would like your feedback on this. I tend to look at top-line revenue and growth because you can't lie about top-line revenue. Yeah, that's a really important number. Okay, so... You, yeah, you can, I mean, that, that's how SaaS companies trade. It's, it's really top-line revenue. Yeah, because I, to me, the EBITDA and the profit, those are all manipulable. Uh, I can choose more profit by, by cutting expenses if I'm growing. And, right. and that's not what investors want when you're growing. And so the, the summary is, um, he said, that's a really fair number. And I said, yeah. And then the next day he calls me up and he says, we had an emergency board meeting. We think you're a great fit. We'll, we'll buy you at X. I'm like, Okay. I mean, that was, that was literally the entire negotiation <laughs> on price. <laughs> like, now it still took five months to close the deal uh, because they had to do the due diligence and they had to look sure. at the contracts and, and that stuff takes time. And then uh, <laughs> I remember some of it I thought was silly, but I could appreciate their point of view. Like we had one contract where there was this email thread where I sent the proposal to the company and they were a longtime customer. And in fact, I'll say it, it was Cisco. So we had done a lot of work for Cisco. There was maybe three or four instances where we had sent the, the, the email to, the, to Cisco saying, this is what we want to do. And Cisco said, great, the contract works. Here's the PO. We did the work. We invoiced on the PO and we got paid. But in the due diligence, their lawyers were like, well, Cisco didn't never sign the contract. They got, they issued a PO and paid us. Like, yeah, but they didn't sign the contract. I'm like, so what? And they're like, they got to sign the contract. So, so I had maybe, because I really do believe in these trust-based relationships. I had like maybe 20 customers who had that experience where like the customers never signed the contract. I'm like, yeah, they we, we did a handshake deal and my acquiring company was like, Luke. That's a little harder to sell. It's, we appreciate that you did handshake deals, but they got to sign the contract. So then in the acquisition process, there was maybe a three, three or four week period where I was just going back to my customers and say, could, could you sign this? And they'd be like, really? Okay. So everything worked out fine, right? I mean, I had great customers. And so those are things that I think that founders in that heat of moment and that heat of growth, I know for sure. I was like, I got the PO, they paid, let's move on. But now in my current company, I'm a little bit more um, uh, process and checklist oriented. Like, okay, great. They got to sign the contract. And then we start that into box because you know there's a data room that you have to have. And so for for the founders, you can find – many excellent ad, ad, uh, t- websites and topics on, ad, on data rooms. 
there's small variations in how people like to see them structured, but basically it's the information you need to let an acquirer know about your company. Like it's articles of incorporation, or if it had a name change, or if it has any material lawsuits, or if it's got certain intellectual property, like patents and trademarks, like the, that all just gets dumped into the data room. And one of the things that I've been learning is the importance of just in the normal course of doing business, there's a checklist that says, okay, now that we've got the signed contract, put a copy in the data room. And that helps. Yeah, that's a really, really good tip. Big time saver later for trying to gather things from a bunch of different places. Yeah, and I think the uh, going back to the um, selling of the company, the big lesson was be careful if an investment banker lures you in and says, I can sell your company because you're seeing a lot of that right now on the internet. You're seeing, oh, how to buy a company yep, on the exactly cheap right. store financing and psh, uh, like you're like, really? If your company is a sellable entity, you as the founder are probably the best person to get things started. Now, that being said, I do strongly recommend having gone through the experience uh, and when I sell the next company, I will be hiring an investment banker, but I'm not going to be hiring an investment banker to piss away a bunch of my money to try and sell it. I'm going to make sure that I've got some buyers lined up. I've, I've had some initial conversations. Uh, I've confirmed in myself that there's a reasonable fit. And then I'm going to have an investment banker come in and kind of help me get it through the end. But I'm not going to start with an investment banker. And I think that that was one of those mistakes that I made. That makes a lot of sense. They definitely have their place, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know that's not the first time I've heard that kind of experience. And, and you know, mileage may vary from one to another. There's some really, really good ones out there, and there's some other ones out there. I kind of liken it now to buying and selling a home in the current uh, state of the world. Just about anyone could sell their own home, right. but we don't because it's an infrequent, complex really important transaction in our lives. Like most of us as adults can, we can go buy and sell our own car, right? We right. can, we, we can go buy and sell our own whatever. But when it, when you hit the level of home, you're like, Whoa, this is pretty important. And psychologically we tend to feel better. Now I'm not saying that's a universal law, right? Some people do sell their own home or whatever, and I live in Silicon Valley, so if I ever wanted to sell my home, I know it will sell. It's a hot market sure. forever, but I'm still going to hire a realtor because it's a it's a complex transaction. Well, a good realtor will pay for themselves 10, 20, 100 times over. And the same thing's right. true with an investment banker. You know, if they're right. really good, I, it, they're well worth the money. And if they're not, then you know that's kind of like the experience that you had. That's right. and it's And it's worthy to... Uh, build that relationship with an investment banker uh, over time. It doesn't have to be like calling someone on the phone. Hey, it, it's it's kind of like a doctor. You don't want to change your doctor every time you visit someone. You want someone who, right. who knows you a little bit and has a little history with you that you feel trust with. And so I'm actually already, for the current company, I'm already starting conversations with investment bankers and building some relationships and kind of testing the waters with them. And I've, I've found a couple that are looking good. Well, let's talk about software profit streams. Let's talk about that. That's the new book that's coming out on April 4th. And yes, yeah, so today, uh, today is today, launch day. 
Yeah, that's right. April 4th. Today is launch day. I'm really excited. And when I first heard, you know, a book about software pricing, specifically SaaS pricing, um, my first thought was this is going to be an absolute snooze fest. (laughs) Um, You know, there's what can really be interesting about that. And then looking at the book, it is absolutely incredible. Uh, The way that you've done it, the the graphics, it's a, a very visual book. Uh, you know, and looking at it, I don't think there's a single page that is a wall of text. Uh, there's a lot of good things in there. Every sentence counts. There's so much value, but it's put in a way that is so consumable, so accessible, something I've never seen before about pricing. So if I were to show you my bookshelf, you'd see a lot of books about pricing. And because when you're when you're working on a book, you're going to read and build on sure. top that came. And there were a few things that really stuck out from the current wall of books on pricing. One is they're all written by boomers for boomers. So they're boring and dense, like you said. Yes. I mean, just so much text and, <laughs> and complex diagrams. But second is none of them deal exclusively with the complex system of software. So so this, I, I often say, look, this is the pen. When I sell you the pen, you own the pen. You can do whatever you want with it. You could write with it. You could use it to uh, pry open the, the mayonnaise jar. You could <laughs> melt it. It doesn't matter. But software has none of those characteristics. Software is intellectual property. So right off the bat, you can't take all of that insight about pricing and uh, pricing a pen or pricing physical goods because it's not a physical good it's intellectual property right so you've got license agreements when i license my software you i have controls over what you can do with it and some of that seems mundane but it becomes not mundane like you can't disassemble it you can't reverse engineer it you may or may not be able to uh, copy the data the data may be governed by external laws like GDPR or CCPA. And no software lives alone. Every software delivered has technology in licenses. And people have said, like, I don't know what you mean, look, uh, well, go to a developer. And if they're using C or Java or Scala, they're using the runtime libraries of their language. That's a that's a license. We've got open source. You And that license that you're licensing in often affects the license that you give to your customer, your customer license. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to write a radically better book. I personally like to challenge myself and uh, because I want to grow. And I thought to myself, what if we wrote the book by hand with paper and pencil and made it as visual as possible? So could we, on every sentence remove the sentence and replace it with a picture because we know that people consume information both from the textual word and from the visual. And can we make it almost as engaging as a comic? It's not a comic, but I'm a huge fan of comics, that media of a picture and words coming together to create something incredible. So we hired a full-time designer. It's the most expensive book (laughs) we've ever (laughs) written. But the result is is a stunning kind of breakthrough in what a business book can look like and what it can convey. I think it is definitely the the future of of, of business books. I mean, it just like I said, it's so consumable, so approachable, and the the concepts stick because that you see the the picture and then it relates to the the words and the concepts, and it just it makes so much sense. 
And the, the other insight that I had is uh, some of the books I've written have been kind of tool centric, not process centric. Like here's a tool. And then I hadn't really provided enough guidance to the reader on how do you apply the tool? What's really important about software profit streams is that we have a canvas and we know there's a lot of canvases like the business model canvas or the value proposition canvas. So we built a canvas, which is a compact way to represent a lot of information. But in addition to describing each part of the canvas, like your pricing model or your profit engine, which is how you make more money once you've made the transaction, what we did was we have a section on applications. How do I actually have a process to set the price and create the business model. And that process breaks down into two very, very distinct sub-processes. One is new product development. Before I launch my solution, what am I doing to set the price? And I'm using design thinking. I'm using my in-licenses. I'm using competitive analysis. I'm figuring out the company strategy for the product. It's either the company strategy, if it's a startup, or if it's within an existing company, I'm looking at the prior choices on strategy and the prior solutions the company has. Am I a video game company and I'm doing the next game in the franchise, or am I doing a new game, the first game in a new franchise? Those are different relationships. Those are different are, choices. Yeah. Then after I've launched, I've every solution has a solution life cycle. And we, we know it through crossing the chasm. We know it through the S-shaped curve of adoption. So one of the things that we find consistently is that startups will launch and they don't change their pricing for months or years. Or and ever. Really, or ever, which is really, <laughs> yeah. Some, some companies are like, yeah, we never change our pricing. And I'm like, why? Well, our right. market is so big. I didn't ask you how big your market was. I asked why you never change your pricing. Right. And I'll get answers like, well, why would I? I'm like, well, tell me this. Have you, as you've been riding up the adoption curve, have you been improving your software? Yeah. I said, so you've been improving your software. You don't understand, Luke. We, we have to keep the price low because we want to keep growing. I'm like, that's not correlated. In fact, if you look at the adopter psychology, moving from innovators to early adopters to early majority to late majority Sometimes the late majority from a psychological standpoint need to pay more because they want to know that what they're buying is not the new thing. It's the stable thing. So you do some economics and you're like, you can raise your pricing. In fact, one, we just completed a engagement for a startup that hadn't raised their pricing in three years. They just had gotten VC funding. And so our partner in this is a VC firm, Companion Ventures in Boston, and they have us work with all of their portfolio companies. Well, one of their portfolio companies had been in business for three years. They, they just hit that kind of magic number of 1.5 million ARR. So it's a really good investment because it's stable, it's ready to grow. And then we looked at it and we're like, you haven't raised prices in three years and you haven't adjusted your packaging. And so then we said, we've got all this data now, you've got these customers, let's, re let's adjust our packaging. Let's adjust our pricing. And we just launched that. And people are happily paying a higher price. And that's good for, for everybody. One, you have a higher value in the solution. You're able to invest more. You have some profit. 
uh, there's a return there. And so that just accelerates it. It creates more differentiation, uh, more monopoly control. You're, you're more in control of the, the market and being able to, to drive new features forward and solve more problems. And what drives me nuts is what you just said, is you can invest more. And people are like, oh, profit. I'm like, well, how are you going to invest in your growth if you don't have profit? We we can't, a, a, a company needs a profit to be able to invest in itself so it can serve its customers. If you don't have a profit, you can't pay your employees, you can't give them bonuses, you can't give them raises, you can't serve your customers better. You can't create new versions of solutions. And I know that some listeners might be, oh, I have a negative view of profit because some people have uh, inappropriate uh, pricing policies or profit policies. And we've seen that with the guy who did the EpiPen, right? And, and we were all at an outrage. Right. Those stories are so few and far by, between. Most businesses charge, in a sense, a, a fairly fair number because the business can't survive if it's not perceived as fair because people won't pay it. So, right. That's part of the free market. It's part of the free market, right? The EpiPen yeah. thing was a weird anomaly in, in, in uh, a free capital market. And where I get to on this is the next thing that I want to bring up, which is really important in pricing, is SaaS founders tend to overweight functional or tangible value. And when you look at the value that you provide customers, it's inclusive of, of intangible attributes and it's inclusive of psychological attributes. And I was working, I'll go with this small company again. They were actually competing against Oracle and we were loose, listing the functional value and they're like, oh, we can't, we can't raise prices, Luke. I said, why? And they said, well, Oracle just came out with another release and we're behind and we're not worth as much. I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. Let's take a step back. I did some customer interviews preparing for this with you and you did some customer interviews. Tell me what customers are saying. And they say, oh, they love working for us. We are responsive. Our software is easier to use. I'm like, okay, so those are all intangible benefits of working with you as a startup. And I said, frankly, and some people enjoy working with startups because they, they have this sense of excitement. It's almost voyeuristic, right? You've experienced this yourself when you're working with this big company. You're like, why are you working with this little company? They're like, oh, we love little companies. Well, they do. They're just not as bold as you, right? They're working right, in a big company, right. but they want to have want to see excitement. you succeed. They want to see you succeed. And they, they, they're your help. And I said, so you are taking all of your intangible benefits and you're saying they don't matter. And we've got data from your customers that in fact it does. And they want you to succeed. And I've had, I remember one time, this was only happened once in my entire career, but I went to one of my customers and I, they said, what's our license? And I said, it's $120,000, 10K a month. And the guy said, okay, but my budget's 180 and you're a small company and I don't need it for something else. So I'll pay you 180. I'm like, so you're going to voluntarily pay me more than <laughs> I'm asking. That's fantastic. That doesn't happen often. It doesn't have once. And, and he said, <laughs> yep, I'm going to voluntarily pay you. Now, in exchange, remember that feature that we talked about? I'm expecting that with an extra 60K a year, you can hire another developer and I can get that feature raised on the backlog, can I? That's fantastic. I said, oh, I said, I said, oh 
how about I can't quite engineer hire an engineer for 60, but maybe if you made it 240? And he smiled and he said, okay, 240. But now I get that feature, don't I? And I said, yes. And that's part of that, that commitment of trust and deliverability. But he knew that he could trust me that if he gave me the money, I would deliver the feature. And so that conversation would never happen with one of the behemoths because they have set pricing and their salespeople can't negotiate, et cetera, right. et cetera. Whereas you're a SaaS founder, you're bootstrapping, you're customer led, you bet. You bet. You can have that negotiation. You can have that conversation. Yeah, I love that customer-led growth. Because you you end up with something that they really like, they're really committed to, but then they fund. And that that is really common where they will fund features, they'll fund products uh, because they they see value in there and it's something that they really need. And the the trick is, and and I've heard people say, well, you don't want to let your customers drive your growth. And you hear this all the time, like customers don't know what they want. or That's crap. It's it's true in the consumer market. I may not know what I want, but I know the problems I want to solve. But when you get into the business market, you can have people who are giving you very precise requirements for very good reasons. This actually came from Cisco. Hey, Luke, uh, you have to integrate into our OAuth provider. Really? Yeah, because we have tens of thousands of employees and we're not going to put them in your system. And which OAuth provider do we have to provide? This is who we use, right? So sometimes the business in the B2B world, there are standards, there are existing software that you have to integrate with. Uh, hey, uh, hey, Luke, we need the data in this ISO date format. Why? Because that's the way our data warehouse works. We ingest this format. And it, this, I'm getting into weird technicalities, but sometimes those weird technicalities actually matter. Um, or, hey, we need the web log deleted after 30 days. This is how we comply with GDPR. It's true that in the B2C world, people don't always know what they want. But in the B2B world, sometimes they do. And we cover that in the book in Software Profit Streams. The, the Software Profit Stream book is organized around B2C, B2P, and B2B. And we have different uh, sections that kind of tease out, here's the concept, here's how you might apply it in those different areas, here's where they're common, and here's where they're different. I like that. One of my favorite parts in the book is the Profit Stream Canvas. So tell me about that and how you came up with it. When you think about pricing a software solution, you start to realize that it's a system of interconnected choices. And we talked about that earlier, right? It's not like pricing a pen. It's uh, you've got your license agreements. So what we started with was we looked at the monetization structure and we started to really think about the system of choices. And then we thought help people who are associated with pricing decisions, business leaders, organize those decisions in a sensible way. We went through multiple iterations of the Canvas working with our customers. The very first version of the Canvas had the solution on the left and the customer on the right. And the idea was that you're flowing value to the customer. But what we realized was that by putting the customer on the left and the solution on the right, we could have a sense of customer centricity that's important in our company. So our company, we always start with the customer and customer-led centricity, design thinking, So by putting the customer on the left, we felt we were aligning more to our values and we were able to rearrange the canvas. The point, though, is that each block in the canvas, and there are 10 blocks, 
each block has a structure where the vertical structure is the customer and what they need. And then the middle section is the monetization model, which is the transaction structure. And then the right column is the solution or what you're building. And the rows of the canvas are organized to have solution sustainability. How am I sustaining that solution over time? Economics sustainability for both the customer and for us, right? If, for example, SaaS founders often forget total cost of ownership. Right. And That's super important. Super important. And then the, the bottom is relationship sustainability. When you think about your contract, it's really not a contract. It's formalizing a relationship. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to, to emphasize not the legal aspect, but the relationship aspect of these contracting structures. So the canvas has a very uh, careful row and column design, and it guides people into making the most important choices so that the system can work as a system as they're building out their solution. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, where can we find the book? I want everybody to, to get a copy. Where do we find the book? And where do we find out more about you online? You can get a copy of the book, of course, at Amazon. And you just go to Amazon and search for Software Profit Streams. You can join the Profit Stream community. And we're calling it the Profitable Software Community for all of the business leaders who are starting to join us in this movement at profit-streams.com. And finding me is really easy. <laughs> My slime trail on the internet is huge. I'm on LinkedIn, lhoman at appliedframeworks.com. Uh, you can easily get me and I am easily found and I want to be found. So, so contact me. I want to help you. That's awesome. And we'll make sure to link all of that, especially a link to the book in the show notes. And everybody should go get a copy because this is the SaaS pricing book of the, the decade for sure. Thank you. Outstanding. Really had a great conversation with you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for giving me the chance to share this because SaaS founders need this. Yes, absolutely. We do. Well, thanks again, Luke, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Luke and get a copy of the book, Software Profit Streams at AppliedFrameworks.com. You can also get a copy of the book at Amazon or your favorite bookstore. It's not cheap, but it is absolutely worth every single penny. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com, including we'll put a link out there to Luke's book on Amazon so you can go get it there and uh, no waiting. So please subscribe or follow us while you're there at sasfuel.com. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a ride in my time machine. Free rides are available tomorrow. Definitely keep the your price out of the past, sell in the present, and grow efficiently into the future. Grab a copy of Software Profit Streams and nail your pricing. Super helpful. Well, join us next time for a conversation with an expert and founder, Scott Stouffer. Scott is a five-time CEO, three-time founder, and currently the CEO and founder of Scale Matters delivering go-to-market operations, analytics, and insights to help businesses drive capital-efficient growth. That is definitely the word of the day. Scott took his first company, Visual Networks, public in 2001 and grew it to a peak market cap of $3 billion. You're not going to want to miss our conversation with Scott because he is quite the wealth of knowledge and experience. Then next Tuesday, one of my favorite bootstrap founders of all time, 
Bridget Harris, co-founder of youcanbookme.com. It's a great scheduling tool. She leads a team of 30 people, multi-million pound, yes, pound, British, British pound, multi-million pound profitable business with 22,000 customers and over a million people making bookings every month. She is brilliant, such a delight to have. And so that will be next Tuesday, one week from today. So until then, as always, live in the present, maybe time travel a little bit and enjoy the journey wherever you go. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.